was the night before Christmas, and the book guys asked Paul, Where's the new episode? We can't see it at all. In a rush back home from his last-minute shopping, Paul edited the episode without even stopping. So Merry Christmas to all go to iTunes and get it. Professor Allen in here, but if he was, he'd say hit it. Guys show is brought to you by Audible. Go to bookguys.ca slash audible and get a free book just for signing up for a free trial. Alright, hey, this is uh, Jimmy Goots here. I'm a invited a long-time podcast creator onto the show tonight. Somebody that I've been listening to for years and years and years. Uh, he does a podcast called The Spork Full, and his name is Dan Pashman, coming to us live via satellite uh, through a tape machine. <laughs> and uh, welcome to the book, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, real quick, before we get into anything, we always ask everybody, what are you reading? Are you reading anything? Is there anything on your Kindle, your nightstand, uh, something that you wish you had time to read? What was the last thing you read? I mean, I honestly, I'm more of a magazine guy than a book guy in general. Um, I have a subscription to The New Yorker, which is about all I can handle, and I can't even really handle that. I, uh, I, I, I swear, I wish if I would pay the same amount to The New Yorker if they would send fewer magazines, just <laughs> so that, that way I could read as much as I read now, but without the guilt of like having this magazine pile next to my bed that I can't keep up with. So um, I get Lucky Peach magazine. I get a couple of food magazines that I'm like on the mailing list for, um, and I read a lot of stuff online. But I'll be honest; it's been a while since I've read a book cover to cover. Hey, that's it. These guys try to get me to read comic books and <laughs> graphic novels and all this stuff. You, you know, you got to stick with what makes your clock tick. You know. Yeah, but I, if I'm going to recommend one specific, you want a, a specific recommendation. There's an article in the New Yorker that I read. It was probably in uh, mm, late October, early November, and it was about uh, uh, Chinese restaurant workers, like the guys who are the chefs and the cooks in the kitchens and like typical like Chinese takeout joints. Yeah, and it was just so interesting, like to to actually know what their lives are like and how they find their jobs and about the, you know think about it like there is. There are t towns in America that are so small, they barely have a gas station or a church or a post office, and they have a Chinese takeout restaurant. I'd and, like to know where they eat. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it talks about the differences between the food they cook for themselves and the food they cook for the customers. But also, like, there's this these employment agencies in Chinatown in New York, and these restaurant guys just show up there, and they give them their name and their resume – and they just basically sit outside on the curb for like six hours. And within six hours, the phone rings from somewhere in the country saying, you know, we're in Ohio. We need someone who can cook General So's chicken. Send us someone. 
And that person has been just sitting on the curb for six hours. Just They just hand him a bus ticket. And the next day, the guy's in Ohio cooking out there. That's interesting. That's like cook trafficking. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a really, really interesting story. All right. Well, that's fantastic. That's one thing we tried to get, you know, get from everybody. And um, now let's get into talking about the Sporkful, one of the you know, first podcasts that I started downloading and didn't delete. You, uh, I guess the tagline is, it's not for foodies, it's for eaters. That's right, and thank you. I'm very honored to have not been deleted. Yes, yes, yes. You've you've made it through several iterations of iPod, iPod Shuffle to iPhone and iPad, and uh, the streak continues. <laughs> so you used to do this podcast, which is about everything about sandwich construction, about whether you should put the cheese on the bottom of a hamburger so that when you bite into it, that touches your tongue. You've got a lot of real... Uh, I guess strong opinions about food, and that's what makes your show what it is to me. Yeah, I have definitely have no shortage of opinions, and it's really like you said, it's not for foodies; it's for eaters. Which by which I mean that you know, I think a lot of food shows and food media out there <clears throat> leaves a lot of people who love to eat. <clears throat> excuse me, leaves a lot of people who love to eat feeling kind of left out. They feel like. I just feel like so much of it is about chefs or cooks. It's about restaurants and recipes. Um, and and I just love to eat. And this is a show that talks about basic foods, foods that we all know and love, cheeseburgers or grilled cheese or all-you-can-eat buffets or Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it is, um, and looks at the, the process of eating those foods in the most absurd possible detail in a fun way. And so um, – what was the question? I can't. I, can't remember I was the like that. There wasn't. There's no question. There is no question. So uh, I, I'm just all of a sudden got to thinking of like around the Fourth of July. What would you be talking about? Well, probably talking about hot dogs. You hot are dogs. talking about hot dogs, and yeah. and and uh, do you know what a West Virginia hot dog is? I don't. Tell me about it. It is mustard, chili, onions. And if you're in any other part of West Virginia other than Marion County, which is where I went to college, about everywhere else puts coleslaw on it. And I know your and thoughts on coleslaw. How are the onions? Are they cooked or they're raw? They're raw and they're chopped rough. You know, some people mince them up, but, you know, savages. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't always love raw onions. I mean, I... To me, they can be a little harsh and overpowering, and then also they sink to the bottom of your stomach, and then like hours later, it'll burp, and it's nothing but raw onions back in your mouth. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> my favorite, uh, my favorite hot dog place actually is uh, in Fairmont, West Virginia. It's called Yans, Y A N N S, and this old man who runs this place, he's got to be eighty-eight. And it's just a little tiny shack, and it's mustard, chili, and onions. You can't get extra anything. Um, he doesn't want any questions. He's real gruff. He's like the hot dog Nazi. <laughs> and he got me to eat onions and mustard. You know, those two, I'd never got them. I would just get in West Virginia. It's not called uh, chili. It's called sauce. Oh, I see. And, and what's in it then? It's, uh, it's a proprietary mixture that is, you can find it online. It's a, it's, it's a beef ground beef based. Um, and, I know there's there's a hint of cinnamon in it and uh, a bunch of 
um, red hot pepper flake. It's cooked really long and simmered down. Most people that are anti-spicy just can't even eat the sauce because it's hot. I mean, it's really it's hot. It's not hot for me, but for a lot of people, it's just too hot to even eat. And the drink of choice is chocolate milk. Wow. That is a decadent combination right there. <laughs> it's the only time I'll ever drink chocolate milk I don't make at home. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, it does sound good. I can imagine the onions adding a nice little bit of crunch. Yeah, crunch, yes. Yeah, you need that. But you used to do the sporkful with another guy, right? That's right, yeah. A guy named Mark Garrison and I did it together. We, we had worked together at NPR, and I discovered that um, he had a similar bizarre approach to food as I did. And love to eat, and so when I I, uh, I first set out to start the sporkful and came up with this idea, uh, I asked him to do it with me, and uh, we had a lot of fun doing it together for a couple of years. Um, and then it just sort of got to the point where the podcast had grown, this book deal came along, and right around the same time, Mark got uh, a job offer, a great job offer, at Marketplace, and I was sort of ready to double down on the sporkful and the book, and he had this great opportunity. Um, so you know. Uh, we went our separate ways, but uh, you know I think he's doing great at marketplace. I think it's been a great fit for him, so I you know wish him the best. And um, you know it's also provided an opportunity for me to take the sporkful in some new and different directions, or sort of you know force me to take the show in new and different directions, which I think in the long run has been good for the show because I think as much as I think uh, you know it, it was fun to listen to me and Mark argue about certain things. You know we did that for about 100, 125 or one hundred and fifty episodes. Um, I think that if we were still doing that three three years later, um, you know, I think that the show would be a little stale at that point. So I think you know we broadened our horizons a bit, and now instead of looking at it more about me talking, sharing my opinions, and, and talking to Mark about opinions, I look at the show more as like trying to take this, trying to take the lens that I use to look at food and to get other people to look through it also and to take it out into the world. I like the and, way you and, put that. And find out what happens. Because I got at one point tired of you guys fighting over the same things. Right, right. And then, you know, I got to where I missed it, but then the show was reinvented sort of. Now you you got, you know, Mark Marin come on the show or you got the guy that invented the cronut come on the show and you're taking your viewpoints and forcing it on new people and bouncing ideas back and forth. And, you know, I, I just thought it was interesting. And I didn't know that you had, you know, worked it, you know, for NPR before. I thought this whole NPR thing was just kind of thrust upon you and you were just it was riding this huge wave of uncertainty. I mean, no, no. Well, I mean, I, I had worked at NPR before. I mean, my whole background was in radio. I'd done some print journalism, but mostly news radio and news talk radio. So friends of mine from radio were, were starting podcasts, and they encouraged me to start a podcast. I was kind of tired of working on good shows that got canceled. And I thought if I started my own podcast, at least no one could cancel it but me. That's and true. so, you know, it was a side project for years and, and a, a passion project. And I invited Mark to do it with me. We had a lot of fun doing it together. Um, and, you know, I, I, I still try to incorporate some conflict into the show. I think it's fun to argue some of these sort of silly debates. Recently, I had a couple married couple call in. They were arguing about whether when you eat string cheese, are you supposed to are you eat, are you eating it wrong if you don't peel the cheese into strings? Yeah. So. The call-in shows offer me an opportunity to kind of debate back and forth with people. Marin and I argued 
So I still always want that to be a fun part of the show, but I don't want it to be the only the only thing we do. Well, the guy um, who wasn't peeling the string cheese, I agree. Yeah. He was wrong. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine just snapping and biting through it, and you can feel all the different layers. I I mean, there's 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 something to be said for it, but it's it's blasphemous. Yeah, I, I I was I was shocked. Although since I aired that episode, a lot of people have said to me, "Oh, I totally chomp right into it." Also, that's the best way. So maybe there is some merit to it. I mean, I you know I'm I'm still a little skeptical. That's the chord you need to strike, though, isn't it? You know, somewhere in between that gets gets a conversation started, not just you know agreeing with everybody. Yeah, I mean, I try. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I, that's a good way to put it. I I, I try not to. I don't want to be one. I don't want to come across as one of these like sort of old school talk radio jerks who just like shoots down every person who comes along just because he can. But I also don't want to be one of these sort of like namby pamby milk toast public radio types who just thinks that everyone's idea is equally wonderful. Um, and so I try to strike a balance and maybe I'll disagree with people and argue with people, but I want them to know that it's all in good fun. And I try not to make anyone feel bad or put them down even if I think that their way of eating something is kind of crazy um, or, or inferior. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, I got to strike a balance. Um, and so it's, it's a challenge. And I think, you know, one good thing about the fact that I worked on all those shows that got canceled is that I've worked on a lot of shows that got created from scratch. You know, I worked on a lot of shows that got created, you know, it really, in reality, it happened the other way. I worked on a show that got created from scratch, then it got canceled, then another one created from scratch. So I've created a lot of shows. In fact, the Sporkful, I've never worked on any show as long as I've worked on the Sporkful. So, but, but because I, I've come from this sort of start world of startup uh, programming, I try to always keep the startup mentality on the Sporkful. I try to always be thinking about what can I do differently? What can I do better? You know, when you're creating a show from scratch, you're really willing to try new things and do things, do, do different things. Cause you're not sure what the show is yet. And so you're always experimenting and you're like, well, let's try anything once and see if it works. Maybe this will be a fun new direction. And even though there's a certain level of stability and, and a system to the way Sporkful works, like I, I try to never lose that feeling of like, I'll try anything once and see if it works. And so over the summer, I did an episode where I interviewed a meteorologist and debated which of all the desserts named after weather systems, which ones are the best. You know, like weird things. Uh, like that, I, we had a whole digression in the Mark Maron episode where I was just obsessing over whether or not I cooked my turkey properly on Thanksgiving. That was a little bit. That was a little bit of a different aside than I've done before. Yeah, what was it called? You 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 cut it up and then spread the whole thing out. I can't remember what the term is. Yes, it's called spatchcocking. You remove the backbone of the turkey and you yes. lay it flat. That was it. And speaking of the Mark Maron episode, I think I shot you an email about this. I was blown away. The you know, being now an NPR podcast and listening to the Sporkful for all those years, I never heard the F word make it through into a podcast. Yeah, that was actually a mistake. <laughs> oh, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I got a tweet or something about that. Maybe you were the one who wrote to me. It was like, I, I was, was the one that wrote to you. Yeah, I was yeah, very surprised. I, was like, I, I knew it was Mark Marin that there's a possibility of it, but that kind of, you know, I, I do have curses occasionally, very rarely, but I always bleep them, and that was one that I meant to bleep and just forgot, which is why I should remember the old rule of uh, bleep it on the first time through so you don't forget. Um, so just being you know, now the podcast 
being produced the way you produced it for all this time and now being an NPR podcast of sorts, or I mean, it is or whatever, how has it changed what you do with the show? I mean, it has, it has, I gotta be honest, it has a little bit more of an NPR kind of sound to it. Not as much, but it's, it's kind of fitting into that format really well. How, how has it changed the way you have to do the show? Yeah, I mean, yes. So, so it's uh, WNYC, to be precise. WNYC, New York Public Radio, picked up the show. Um, I mean, it, it, I think it's changed uh, a good number of things um, for the better. I mean, I I have a producer now who works under me, so that just gives us so much more manpower. To, I, I can do so many more ambitious shows that I never could have pulled off when I was doing it by myself. I just never would have had the time or been able to book the guests. Um, and, and get it all together and then edit it. Um, yeah, I think you're right that the show has a little more of a public radio feel now, but I think it's also, you know, th- that was not, no one at WNYC had told me to do that. It was really that. I think I've tried to kind of mellow out a little bit in my presentation on the air to talk a little bit slower, um, to make the show feel a little bit more intimate, to make it feel a little bit less like I am, um, a big, loud broadcaster and to make it feel a little bit more like I'm just hanging out with you, my friend, and we're talking. Um, and so what happened was I started just trying to be that way a little more of my own volition. And I started to feel like the music that I had originally created for the show at, um, didn't fit anymore because when I would, put, I would edit the show and put the music up next to that slightly more laid back conversational yeah it was style. a little a little carnivalish almost yeah it, it didn't feel right all of a sudden yeah um you know and 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 then i would uh and then the whole long intro i used to do you know this is the sporkful it's not for foodies it's for eaters we're going to challenge your assumptions about consumption and that too we're full of knowledge on you right which was really fun and like i i i love that but i also kind of honestly i just kind of felt like i had outgrown it like like it felt like um it felt forced and kind of um, constructed, and I wanted the show to feel more uh, authentic and intimate. And, and and so I mellowed the music out a little bit, and I took out some of the present, more presentational elements, and tried to make it feel more like it's just me and some friends sitting around a table in a kitchen talking. Hmm. Well, I, I agree with all that, and it, everything you're saying makes sense. As a longtime listener of this, seeing the transition happen. It uh, it all seemed it seemed to just happen in little bits and little waves, and now it's just kind of it's it's not a new thing at all. It's just I think it's a better thing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, and I, and I, I got, I'm sure there are going to be those people out there who, you know, I think in any creative endeavor, there's always going to be those people who say, you know, oh, we we liked his old albums better, yeah, you know, or whatever. You know, they're always going to have those people. But when you're trying to be creative, you know, like you have to follow what what gets you excited. And doing the same show week in and week out, you know, wouldn't get me excited. And and if I was still creating the same kind of show I was making three years ago, I, I assure you it wouldn't be as good as it was three years ago because I'd be bored out of my mind. Right. People um, hate change, but you know right. the way the way you initiated the change, I don't think anybody really noticed. Yeah, I mean, and, and and honestly, it was very organic. It was week to week. Like I was literally sitting there editing the show together, and I was like, "This music doesn't sound right now. It used to sound right." Next to the next to my voice, next to the set, the the pace and the style of conversation, 
And now when I listen to it, it doesn't sound right. Well, and speaking so, of... So uh, I said I'm putting in new music. Well, speaking of segues... Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I got to ask you about the book. This is the book, guys, and you wrote a book. How how much you know? How did that come along? And what's it like to write a book? Um, it's long to write a book. It takes a long time, and it's a lot of delayed gratification. Um, but like also a year, very, year and a half. I mean, it took me probably two years to do the whole thing, including the design and all that. Wow. Um, I mean, really. Uh, a, a year and a half of intense work to create the book, let's say, um, with a lot of months before that getting ready and uh, months afterwards getting, you know, promote, trying to promote it and all that, which is a whole other animal that's totally separate from making the book. Um, the book came along because an editor at a publisher heard the podcast and said, and emailed me. We had a meeting and it was a good meeting. She said, you know, do you ever want to write a book? I said, yeah, sure. You know, I, I thought maybe someday this would happen, but uh, she put me in touch with some literary agents. She said, you got to have a literary agent. So I met with some of them and picked the one I like, and she helped me make a book proposal. We, we shopped it around and got, got a publisher, and it was, I mean, it was a really, really exciting process. I mean, something I'd never done before. Certainly something, I mean, I, I've been writing on and off for many years, so the idea of writing a book was something I always... Um, thought would be really exciting. It's something I had in the back of my head that I would like to do someday, but I didn't really know exactly what it would be until this all came along. So the process was um, not really, well, I guess it was in the cre on the creative side, it was basically what I expected. Uh, it's hard and it requires a, a lot of sustained Work. I've never worked on anything that that I worked on for so long, like day in and day out, like a like a number of hours every day for weeks and for months, you know. Um, but that's to be expected, you know. The things, the th I guess, the thing that was a little surprising was just like the degree to which, um, the whole like there's not just not like a system. I kept like like in the world of publishing, I just kept expecting them to be like, okay, here's the calendar, and you know, here's what's but it's like. The whole process of publishing a book, and maybe this explains to some extent why, you know, publishers are. Uh, actually, I don't think it explains anything. About <laughs> do, do you think that the <laughs> like, um, do you think that the second book would be faster because you're better now? You know, it's not even. I mean, maybe yes, maybe, but it was not even that it was slow. It, it does take a long time. It's more that I was surprised by the degree to which the entire process is sort of done like at first on a handshake and then kind of flying by the seat of your pants um, and sort of feeling the whole thing out. And it, to some extent that made me, I guess, gain respect for the process because I feel like, you know, I felt like the people at Simon and, Sh I felt this, like, like the people at Simon and Schuster, my publisher would from very early on have a very clear idea of like, Here's the plan. Here's when this will happen. Here's when that will happen. Here's going to do what. Here's who's going to do what. But in reality, they didn't do that stuff until the book was mostly written. And early on, I found that frustrating. But once it all played out, I came to understand the logic of that, which was that um, this is a new and different approach to food. And no one's ever heard of me before. And... 
it's very hard for the people at Simon & Schuster who aren't working with me every single day to wrap their heads around it and to know what the best course of action is until they've seen it and read it. And so, and if they can't understand it, then surely the people who might want to buy it aren't going to understand it. So w once they started to read it and they started to get it and and, and, and it was more and it was closer to being done and the thing became more tangible – then all these dominoes started to fall. Then they knew what to do with it. Right. And, and, and then, then all these gears started churning. And then, and then I could see like something that felt more like, okay, now I'm on the assembly line. You know, now, now I'm on the track. But for, for a long, long time, it felt like I was just out there in the ether. Um, now that I've been through the process once, I can look back in retrospect and kind of understand the logic of why that, it had to be that way. Tell us a little bit about what the book's about and maybe where people can get it, especially if somebody wants, like me, to get one of the personalized copies. I, I remember listening to one of the podcasts telling where you had to go to get one, and uh, maybe I can get it straight from the horse's mouth. Yeah, well, so, um, I mean, the book's available wherever books are sold. It's also available as an ebook and an iBook and an audio book um, and all the websites and all the bookstores. Um, if you want a signed copy, you can order one for, uh, through Powell's of Portland. If you want a personalized copy where I write your name in it and write you a special message, you can call Book Review in Huntington, New York. Book Review, R-E-V-U-E. -E. That's near where I live. And they'll take special orders. And you tell them what you want me to write, who you want me to make it out to, if you want me to write a silly message. And uh, every few weeks, I go over there and I sign all the books and they'll ship them for you. So Book Review, Huntington, New York. Um as for what the book's about, it's basically based on the premise that a bite is a precious resource. You only get so many bites in life, and you want to make each one as delicious as possible. And so the book is a fun, jokey, tongue-in-cheek textbook that will teach you to do that. And so it's got every, you know chapters broken into school subjects like engineering, philosophy, psychology, language arts, physical sciences. The engineering chapter talks in great detail about sandwich construction, how to build a sandwich so that ingredients don't slip out the back. Um, the philosophy chapter talks about the ethics of cherry picking specific ingredients from a snack mix, whether, you know, if, if you got five different ingredients in a snack mix at a party and you only pick out the peanuts, does that make you wrong? Are you a bad person? Yes, because it uh, disallows someone else to make a particular combination that they may be you know, they may enjoy. But oh, what peanuts one, are the only good thing in it? <laughs> that's one, that is one argument. But have you ever done it? Yes. Okay. That's usually what people say. They say it's wrong, but I've done it. <laughs> and I'll so, do it again. Do as, do as I say, not as I do. Right. That's... Well, but in, in, in the book, I actually make an argument for why it's okay. Oh, I see. Now I like that. It'll make me feel better about myself. There you go. There for you what? Go. For 1995. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I I'd like to think that it's a, a a very new and different approach to food and eating. Uh, it's my sincere hope that people who've never bought a cookbook and don't consider themselves really quote unquote into food, but who just love to eat, would love this book and find it really fun and entertaining. That it would change the way you would eat even the simplest foods that you eat on your lunch break or that you scrounge around at dinner. And um, it's a great book to uh, put next to your toilet and open up to a random page and just read. 
it's the kind of book that you can, um, you know, pick something out of at any time. And, and I think most of it will apply to pretty much everybody. Where do you put the cheese in your life, Dan? Well, every, I mean, the short answer is everywhere and all at once. <laughs> That's great. Um, but um, I, there, I do talk in the book about a concept I call the proximity effect, which basically says that whenever you put a bite of food into your mouth, you want to be aware of which part of the bite is in closest proximity to your tongue because that flavor will be accentuated. And um, I recommend that you make a cheeseburger with the cheese on the bottom because that way um, the cheese will be closer to your t- tongue and it will accentuate cheesy goodness. Craig will tell you top and bottom cheese. Always. You can do that. Mm-hmm. It depends on how thick your burger is. I mean, just remember that the burger is still the star. You know, the burger's the star and the cheese is a supporting actor, but you also don't want the cheese lost. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, read the book, eat more better, find out whether you want slabs of lettuce or whether you want it shredded or if that just totally ruins things yeah i mean to me shredded lettuce has no place in society (laughs) yeah i like that that's why i like you dan you're very very opinionated very (laughs) well versed when it comes to uh, all things culinary (laughs) so uh, tell everybody where we can find you um the sportful.com the sportful on twitter right where else yeah, well, uh, if you listen to podcasts, which I'm guessing you do if you're listening to, the, to the, our voices right now, you can find The Sporkful anywhere you find a podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, through WNYC's app uh, at sporkful.com, just anywhere, subscribe to The Sporkful and uh, take a listen and check out the book and hope you like it. Why does Sporkful only have one L at the end? It's not quite full. Well, because that's how you would spell it if it was a spoonful or forkful. I get it. I get it. I, I was just confused, but Google will will correct you. I've found. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a, it's a valid question, though. These are the things that we need to consider in today's society. Very important <laughs> issues. Well, hey, I don't know, Joe, Craig. You got any questions? Thanks for yeah. hanging on. Yeah, I guess I I just have one quick question: Is uh, where can I still get a spork? Taco Bell. Well, yeah. Uh, do Taco Bell still have them? Do they still do that? That's all they have. Yeah, that's right. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you can. There are. There's a whole sort of cottage industry of uh, artisanal sporks online. <laughs> artisanal they're spork. Popular, yeah, they're also very popular among hikers. You know, because like you want to travel light, so you get. It. There's a lot of like uh, sporks, like a key, spork keychains and like foldable sporks that are sold in camping stores and things that you can bring so you can like eat your soup out of a can around the campfire without needing, you know, to carry two separate utensils. And it's a comb and, you know, a weapon. That's right. You can fend off bears with it. I I guess I'm off to REI after this. <laughs> well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate oh, wait, it. I actually, I actually have a good question, oh, I think, which yes. is rare. I usually don't have really good questions. <laughs> Joe Esposito, <laughs> please. My one good one. Here it is. Uh, I, I just read uh, there was an, uh, an article on Alton Brown in Time, and he was talking about how he's gotten really sick of how everything with food has become either a competition show or kind of what you're talking about where it is over sensationalizing the food as opposed to the experience of eating. And to me, I mean, I, I see it because Food Network – has changed radically within the last like three, four years from what it, at least I remember it being. 
that I mean, are you seeing the same thing where it has started to become almost reality television with food now? Yeah, certainly. I, mean, I think that's been a trend for a while. And uh, I mean, you know, there are a lot of fun shows out there, but um, I, I personally don't watch, I don't really watch much TV at all uh, outside of Colbert, which sad to say I don't want him to watch after this. Um, but yeah, like I, I don't watch that many of the competition shows. And, and I feel like, but I mean, look, I, the competition shows and all the different shows, like they, they, they they have their audience and for the people who like them, like I'm not going to tell you you're wrong for liking those shows. Um, and I'm not going to tell you you're wrong for making those shows. I just think that there's a whole other segment of people out there who are really passionate about eating, who aren't served by those shows and by most of the other stuff they see out there in the food world. And that's what I mean when I say that my book and my podcast are not for foodies, they're for eaters. That, you know, foodie connotes a certain amount of pretension and expertise, and I think that makes people feel, some people feel left out. And if you love to eat, there should be something for you. Yeah, we might not all be foodies, but everyone eats. That's right. Well, fantastic. That's that's where we're going to end today. Dan, thank you for coming on. Sorry about uh, bumping you up a couple of weeks ago. We got a whole bunch of new things happening with the podcast here, and uh, appreciate you taking the time. No worries. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Hi, this is Colin Ferguson. I play Sheriff Jack Carter on Eureka, and you're listening to The Book Guys. All right, welcome to the uh, book. Back to the book, guys. I guess uh, Craig here with Jimmy and Joe, and we have a special guest tonight, Matt Youngmark, who I am calling an author and publisher of uh, from Chooseomatic Books. And uh, Matt, uh, I'm going to go ahead and let you describe yourself. Uh, yeah, I'm author, uh, illustrator, publisher, and janitor. So I'm a quadruple threat. Perfect. Now, uh, on your choose advent your own adventure books, does janitor come up a lot? <laughs> Not when you're actually playing the books, but it's important that you keep <laughs> things tidy, like on the back end. So I have read uh, you. You have three main choose your own adventure books, three, right? Yeah, the third one just came out a couple of months ago. Okay, and that's time travel dinosaur. Yes, where you play the time traveling dinosaur. That's all, all right there in the tin. <laughs> and I haven't done that one yet. I've I've read your first one, uh, Zombocalypse Now. Zombocalypse. Zombocalypse Now. Zombocalypse Now, yes. Uh, where you are a stuffed pink bunny trying to survive the zombie apocalypse. Yes. And, uh, and then I just downloaded uh, Thrust of Justice, but I haven't started yep. that yet, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, Thrust of Justice, you play... Uh... The first, it's a superhero story. The first choice you make, you get one of three different superpowers. And then you can either uh, try to save the world or go villain, crushing it at your heel. Justice isn't right for everyone. So, uh, choose your own adventure books, essentially for adults. And I, I don't want to say they're adult themed choose your own adventure books because that seems to have a different connotation to it. Yes. Well, yeah, plus, not- I saw Thrusts of Justice after you <laughs> said that. I was like, whoa, whoa. I- the title is way pornier than the book itself. It's uh, they're they're kind of PG thirteen, like they're written for adults, but they're safe for teens because a lot of parents like to buy them for you know their their thirteen year old kids and say you know hey Timmy, it's fun to read. It's a book any game, um, but yeah, I write them for myself, so they're aimed at adults. Um, but uh, yeah, they're not they're not like for little little kids like the old school choose your own adventures were. 
Like, you know, you could choose to keep drinking until you pass out. <laughs> yeah. And I think I may have done that uh, as a pink bunny. <laughs> and you did not survive the zombie apocalypse, did you? I Is there a way not to survive it? I mean, we'll, we'll go ahead and say spoilers here. You, there's 112 possible endings. I don't know exactly yep. how many I, many I did, but uh, I never survived. Yeah, there are seven. There are seven in which you don't die. Damn. I guess I got to get that back out. There's stuff out there for a stuffed bunny. Yeah, you got to persevere. You got to want it. Yeah, maybe that yeah, was never. my problem. I always found the easiest path, and I said, that's what I would do. <laughs> yeah, if I always ask people what their first ending was, because if they're in their very first uh, read-through, if they get eaten by a zombie deer, then I know that they ran at every possible opportunity. Uh, no, I never, I didn't get that one. If you run no matter what, then you get eaten by a zombie deer. And I, a surprising number of people are like, I got eaten by a zombie deer. But you know, that's <laughs> the the first time you read it, you're going to read and, and do what you would do in real life, right? So, yeah, yeah you, you see zombies, you run. You know, you try to make it out, out of town, get out to the mountains, you know, hide away in the cabin, all that kind of thing. So that's perfectly which acceptable. immediately brings a question to my mind, which is if you know there's an ending that can only be gotten to a certain way, do you have Easter egg endings where only the magic combination of these eight or nine decisions can get you to this one ending? Well, every every ending is like that. It's a, it's a, it's branching paths, so you have to make to get to any particular ending. You can only get there one way. Ah, okay, okay, right. Yeah, and that's actually something I was very impressed with was because and and I love choose your own adventure books growing up, which is why I think we were talking about these choose your own adventure books on the show about a month ago or so, and I was like, I wonder if they make these anymore. And I found yours, and uh, I was perfect because i had a flight to paris so i had plenty of time to kill and uh but yeah i never repeated the same ending and that that was a that was a question i had for you if, if any of them repeat uh there's actually to tell you the truth there's there are some instances where you can you can route around and get to the same ending in, in different ways uh um, in the first book, in the zombie one, there's, I think, three or four where you can make, you know, two different sets of decisions and still wind up at the comic book store, say, and then go from there. And, you know, a few places that loop together. Uh, the second book doesn't have as much of that. Uh, the third book actually has a lot because it's a time travel story. And in that one, you could just jump through a portal and then suddenly you're in the Middle Ages. You know, uh, fewer endings and more chances to just jump around to a different part of the story. Yeah, and I really like... I like in Zompocalypse some of your little jokes like, you know, if you, you know, do you want to stay and keep dating the zombie or would you like to run away? And you're like, ah, I'll stay. And then it's like, are you sure? Have you ever seen a zombie movie before? <laughs> well, you know, the idea is to kind of play with the format a little bit and people know what they're, you know, they know Choose Your Own Adventures and they know zombie stories. So you got to have some fun with it. Now, Craig, have you seen this other one? I'm scrolling right. Hey, uh, Matt, this is Jimmy and uh -huh. Conspiracy Friends. Yeah, that's actually my web comic. That one does not a choose your own adventure. It's just a comic I do every day, Monday through Friday. Oh, I'm sorry I brought it up. <laughs> no, you could totally like everybody should go. <laughs> oh there. no, Jimmy's it's just not into comics. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, yeah, that's uh, whereas that's I'm immediately picture. drawn right to that. Literally. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, okay, let me look. Hold on a minute. Just the word conspiracy just drew me, but I do not I have that, a web comic too. I've got another question about – no, it's a webcomic. I hate it, Joe. I hate it. Yeah, I know you don't. I know you don't. I don't. Um, but Choose Your Own Adventure, is is there something like uh, an app or does Audible or anything work where you can download one of your Choose Your Own Adventure books and choose it on your your phone or your computer or your Kindle? Or 
Yeah, actually. Well, they're all available for the Kindle. Um, the ebook editions are, are pretty simple. They're just the text, and then they have uh, links to get to the next part of the story. Um, so you don't have to flip around. You just hit the link. And then your ebook has, your e reader has like a built in back button. So you don't have to keep your fingers on the pages, you know, if you mess up horribly. Yeah. Um, but the first book is actually out as an as a Android and iPhone app, an iPad app. So Zombocalypse Now, you can get from the Apple Store or from the Google Play Store and play it on your phone or your tablet. Well, now, now that you say yes, is there some way that you can, as an author, as a, you know, a, a digital being selling this stuff, get data back from where people went, what they chose, where they ended up, and use that to shape future books? That's a good question. Now, with the ebooks, there's really no way for me to do that. Um, I mean, I can see like what things people are highlighting and that kind of thing in their Kindles if they love a passage or something, but I can't really... Um, what if you created a really juicy EULA? People don't read those. <laughs> That's true. I don't know if the technology is there for the Kindle. I'm sure it's something that they could implement on the, um, on the, I, the uh, iPhone version, yeah. you know, the actual app version. I don't, I don't make those myself. I don't have those kind of skills. But the company that does Tin Man Games, they're uh, actually based out of Australia, and they have a whole line of, uh, of choose-your-own-adventure-style apps. Um, they have a bunch they've made themselves. They have, uh, they're redoing the old fighting fantasy apps, uh, books as apps, which are super fun because those ones have like dice rolls and stuff and like uh, stats, and they're a little more advanced. And then they also have like the Judge Dread license. They're doing Judge Dread ones, and they're, they're putting out some really, really cool stuff. And they have uh, my first book out as an app, and the other two are coming out early next year. And congratulations on an awesome domain name. I'm a domain name whore. Secretwebcomic.com. Secret That's web a comic. great. <laughs> Thank you. I actually came up with that before I came up with the idea for the comic strip because I wanted to do a, a webcomic and keep it secret for a month to find out if I liked doing it before I told everybody. So I'm like, secret webcomic. Oh, it's a secret. Oh, it can be about conspiracies. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> so, yeah, that's actually that's a what came great up. domain. It gave me the idea to make it about conspiracies is after I registered the domain. Yeah, and I've been doing that one for about a year and a half. And uh, every day, Monday through Friday, I haven't missed an update yet. So, do you plan on doing an audiobook of one of these? Because it's you got chooseomatic.com as well. And I'm thinking an audio version of this would just simply be if you choose page one, go to X. If you choose whatever, turn to, and then you say, no, you choose blank and just go and force people to take how you choose it. <laughs> That's how I do it at uh, a little bit at uh, conventions and stuff when I do uh, readings um, or like bookstores. It's fun because we do audience vote, right? And we, they raise their hands and, you know, we just, uh, you know, take a, take a show of hands to see which way to go. But, you know, if I don't want to read that part, I just kind of pretend uh, that I counted it up right and went the other way. <laughs> so yeah, when you hear me read it out loud, you might not be getting the real deal. You might just be going where I want you to go. Um, there is a possibility at some point that I might do an actual proper audio book. I don't know. It depends on, obviously, who's buying the apps and who's buying the books and how much money we start making. But um, the company, again, that does my apps, they're doing an audio version of another uh, Choose Your Own Adventure book called... Um, Hold on. It's by Ryan North. He does a comic strip called Dinosaur Comics, and he actually uh, kickstarted last year. Oh, I know that year. comic. To Be or Not to Be, that is the adventure. It's based on Hamlet. Uh, he raised a half a million dollars on Kickstarter to put this thing out, and it's amazing. The book is fantastic. It has illustrations from really amazing webcomic artists for like every ending, and, and, and it's really funny and really a lot of fun. And yeah, they're doing his, his uh, e audiobook version as an app so that it'll actually work properly. You can hear him say it. It's, it's pretty cool. Now, Dinosaur Comic, that is the one that's the same image every time with the different words, that's right? The, 
Coming in. Hello. Oh, Help. I still hear you. Yeah. <clears throat> Did we lose you? Uh-oh. Crap. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> he chose the wrong headphone. That's a great response. Crap. Leave that in. Don't edit that out. Uh-oh. I think we did lose him. Did Who? we lose Jimmy, what? too? Jimmy? No. Uh-oh. 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 Oh, wait. I see his face. Oh, oh nope. Now I got a line on him. Oh, man. Author down. Author he down. Got, he's in a Probably, time loop. Uh, he selected the time loop. Conspiracy friends. I shouldn't have mentioned anything. Mm-hmm. My fault. So, uh... Who yeah, knows how so, long it'll take? What's on your Kindle? What's on your nightstand? What are you reading? Well, it's, it's, it's funny. I actually have two physical books because I thought we were going to be doing video, so I was going to hold them up. <laughs> but, uh, but I, you know, I could do You could hold them up anyways. I, I could, I'm holding one up. Uh, I could do a quick, uh, a cool. really great, a really, really great nonfiction book, actually, um, called Blind Man's Bluff, The Untold Story of American Submarine Espionage. I am a Cold War and Soviet like fanatic. And so I did a lot of looking around to find a good book on basically Humphrey and October stories because that's what I really like because that's what got me hooked on it. Uh, the authors, Sherry Sontag, Christopher Drew, and Annette Lawrence Drew. Uh, it's a really great book, very Cold War specific, but kind of traces the lineage of submarine stealth espionage the, you know, from the very beginnings of it. And really a lot of the stories are from the Cold War, but just really great true stories of some really wild stuff that was done in the service of spying, like what's where these subs went tapping lines in the middle of the ocean, how close they came to getting caught explosions. The USS Scorpion, which is a really famous uh, story is in here. It's a really, really great book, uh, especially for a nonfiction. And like I said, if you like cold war stuff, dynamite, really, really great. Well, I just read the exact same book and it was called 20,000 leagues under the sea by Jules Verne. Ah. <laughs> and, uh, it starts out, you know, back in the 1850s, 60s, whatever, and there's a, a ship that's sailing, and they come. Uh, there's like a ship that gets practically sunk by this giant, what they described as a, a narwhal, that that came up and smashed a hole in the ship, and and they, uh, the king and queen, uh, I believe, of France, send out, a, you know, a whole bunch of boats to to find this thing and kill it well they they ended up they come across it and this one guy gets bumped off of the off the boat when the narwhal which is actually the submarine captain nemo's nautilus hits the ship knocks this one guy off and his buddy um who is like his servant he jumps off follows this guy another guy who is the harpooner he falls off the boat they all end up on the Nautilus and they're there for a long time as prisoners and there's a it's funny because there's another part in it about a cable being laid across the ocean and anyway if you've never read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea it really kind of holds up I don't think I've read it since I was probably in high school I, I mean I remember having to read it but I haven't read it since then so it's been a long long time there's yes, a lot of spoilers I could bring up, you know, about things that they find under the sea. But the science and stuff that they talk about, I guess the less you know about real science and how they make <laughs> the air and how Yeah, no spoilers, because I've actually never read Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. 
So, I, you know, d- I, no spoilers gotta, on that. It's only like 100 years old, and I haven't got around to it yet. Well, it doesn't take place on land for the most part. So, oh, wait, 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 come wait, wait, wait. on. Spoilers, dude. Slow down, slow down. <laughs> God. <laughs> that's for the, that's for the uh, spoiler in time afterwards. <laughs> so, so, Matt, uh, what are you reading? Uh, actually, lately I've been uh, reading Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. I, um, it's another one that I, uh, along with 20,000 Leagues, one that's a, a classic and that I've never actually gotten around to, and I'm planning, um, take a br- planning to take a break in the choose a and write a, um, a humorous fantasy novel next. So I'm kind of retouching some of the, some of the classics um, in the genre so that I can kind of wrap my head around it. And yeah, Discworld is super fun. I'm sure Joe's read it. I haven't read that one. <laughs> no, actually, it's funny because Lando's always uh, my co-host on my show is always on me to read more Terry Pratchett. And I, I think, oh God, this is terrible. Oh, he's gonna kill me if he hears this. Uh, I can't. <laughs> uh, I did. I think one. I think I did read one of his books, which is oh man, it's like the Night Guards. It's out of the Night. Oh, he's gonna kill me. It's like the Night Guards. I think that's Pratchett. Is it, Let me is see. It like guards, guards, or one of those? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I yeah. think that's it. Is that Pratchett? Yeah. It is. It is. I haven't gotten uh, to that one yet, but yeah, they're breezy and one. fun and kind of wacky. And and uh, but he's such a good writer and he's so funny. Uh, the only one of his I had read before is the one he wrote with Terry Pratchett, uh, Good Omens, which was uh, or I'm sorry, he wrote with uh, Neil Gaiman, um, and that was that was great. And so yeah, now I'm, I, I figure you can't write a humorous fantasy novel without uh, without at least uh, at least acknowledging Pratchett since he's kind of the king of the genre. Did you say Neil Diamond? <laughs> Neil Gaiman. Is it Gaiman Gaiman? You know. Oh, Neil Gaiman. Neil, All right. Neil yes. Gaiman. Right. Yeah. Neil, da- Neil Diamond writes some great fantasy oh, novels. That dude's amazing. <laughs> he does. I've only heard of Neil Gaiman because of uh, Tom Merritt and Veronica Belmont's podcast about books, whatever. You know what, though, Jimmy? You may find this interesting. He's actually written an episode of Doctor Who. Neil oh, Diamond? Wow. <laughs> Neil Diamond, yeah. <laughs> I heard, plus, he's coming to America. I just had to make sure we got a Doctor Who reference in there for Jimmy since he hates him. That that will uh, will make a few people happy. The Neil Diamond joke makes it all worth it. So uh, I just finished reading, and I I know it's been on the show, but The Martian by uh, Andy Weir, because I think everybody's reading that now. Jesus. You know what? You would think everybody is. I keep hearing that book, man. It's almost like at this point, I'm like, I'm not going to read it for a year just because no one will (laughs) shut up about it. Oh man, I pounded through it. it. It's it's hilarious. It's a great book. the The science is good. It's not perfect, uh, but you know you don't expect it to be. That's that's the only thing that's been bothering me is when people talk about oh the science and it's so great and it's good, but it's not perfect. I demand scientific precision, or I won't read it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't get those absolutes. I mean, if it's an entertaining book, it's an entertaining book. Do I really care? No. Yeah, I hope I hope those people aren't uh, reading Time Travel Dinosaur because I will tell you that the science not super good in Time Travel Dinosaur. <laughs> is that I'm because uh, mystified yeah. by how people get hung up on stuff like that? It's if the book is or the movie or whatever is entertaining, the science can be let go. I don't get that obsession thing that people well, do unless it's presenting itself as a scientific text to instruct you how to do something. Right. Well, but if you go see something like the movie uh, that just came out, Interstellar, and they're like all pitching it like, you know, this is like realistic science. It's like, well, you know, kind of, sort of, a little bit, you know. Um, but, you know, it's uh, to me, again, I, I couldn't care less. As long as the universe is consistent on its own, as long as the rules of the story make sense to itself, then, yeah, it doesn't really matter how real it is. 
All right, so that's For a me. perfect uh, perfect segue to the uh, last question I want to ask you, Matt. Uh, on the cover of Time Travel Dinosaur, T-Rex is wearing a top hat. How yes. could he put that on his head with those tiny little arms? He has help in that one. Yeah, they, uh, he goes in to the to the steampunk 1880s where because of all the time travel shenanigans, uh, all the science in the 1880s is all messed up and they have all these uh, steam-powered versions of more futuristic weapons and so forth. And uh, yeah, they dress him up. He has help. <laughs> That's perfect. That's a much better answer. I would have just said he flips it up into the air and then lands on his head. No, because that's you in the story, and you don't have that kind of skill. I make it very clear uh, when you're when you're reading this story that you are not super dinosaur. You're just like a dinosaur schlub. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Matt, for uh, coming on the show. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, maybe uh, we can have you back again sometime. Sure, and maybe if, if I do come back, maybe I won't uh, pull my my uh, headphones out of my computer while I'm while I'm mid mid show. <laughs> That's, That's right. We, we covered perfectly. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Nice talking to you, Matt. Yep. Hey everyone, it's Eric Rothschild from GardenFork.tv, which is a web video show and audio podcast about cooking, gardening, other fun stuff. You are listening to the Book Guys. Well, I uh, I wanted to. I had one other book review that I want. I want to make sure, of course. Right, I should have done this before you hit record, but I want to make sure I get the exact title because it's one of these long titles. I think so. I want to make sure I get it right. Yeah, oh, like the, the Martian. Title, well, yeah, no, very unlike the Martian. Uh, it is called. Oh, geez, what the hell is it called? <laughs> Hold on a minute. It's a really good book. I want to get it right. Uh, it's called like the complete history. Here it is. The ultimate. See, I knew I wanted to get it right. The ultimate history of video games from Pong to Pokemon. The story behind the craze that touched our lives and changed the world. That's the whole title. That's why I had to look it up. Uh, so I just finished uh, reading this book and it is. See, I'm a big I'm a trivia guy, so I like to know. House And I'm really big into random trivia type of stuff. Uh, and so there's stuff all over this. It's a basic history. Well, it's not even really basic. That's the wrong word for it. It really is a in-depth history. I mean, this guy, the, oh crap, I just closed the friggin' window. That's he a, that's a heavy looking book. Yeah, it is. And it, but the, the reason it is, is this, he found a lot of people still active in the industry who were very willing to talk to him. So he's a lot of direct quotes you know, direct interviews, direct talking to the people who were in these positions of power in the video game industry, all the way from the first, you know, Atari, all the way up to, I think he covered up to about the PlayStation 2 or so is when, you know, he had to finally stop. And he put a, I think he put a little epilogue in there where he said, I finally had to stop this book because it just can't ever end, which is because the industry hasn't died. Uh, but there's great little stuff. I mean, besides my interest in video games, because I, I play video games, so I have a lot of interest by default. But there's a lot of this random stuff that even people with, I'll say only casual interest, if you hate video games, you won't like it. So I'll just tell you that. If you don't play any games and you hate them, you're not going to like it. But if you have even a casual interest, there's neat stuff. Uh, for example, Nintendo, when they first decided to bring the NES over to America, they actually went to Atari and wanted Atari to sell it under their name, but they could never get the details worked out. So if things had gone slightly differently, we would not know the Nintendo as the NES. We would know it as the Atari, you know, Entertainment Center, the AES or something like that. And there's stuff like that all over the book, which is just, for me, I, I'm just a trivia nerd that way. I like ran, especially random trivia or, you know, almost the choose your own adventure kind of thing. If it had gone, they picked this option, 
this is the world you'd be living in. All that kind of stuff, video game related, is sprinkled all through there. And it really does. It covers Atari, ColecoVision, Sega, the Sega Nintendo uh, Nintendo thing, Game Boy, why Tetris was the game with Game Boy. Um, you know, how major some of these things were and how near miss a lot of this stuff was where, again, had the economy been up or down at this time, there would be no Nintendo. There would be no Sega. It was just luck and good marketing in some cases and just, you know, the right decisions at the right time that resulted in the landscape we see. And the thing is, no matter what, you get the sense that there always would have been huge, that video gaming was almost inevitable because of the way that video and traditional gaming like slot machines and skee-ball and all the rest of it were always destined to intersect. It's just the details that were, depending on the time period, every seven or eight years it seemed like you came to these really critical flux points where had one guy made a deal with this person, you would not know the name Sega or you would not know it as the master system or the Genesis or whatever, or 3DO might have been the one that beat everybody and not Sony with the PlayStation. Uh, so it's that kind of book. It's just a lot of really rich research. Uh, there's a lot of really great quotes from the people who were actually there and what really happened and myths and what was real and not. And uh, It's just a really entertaining book if you have any interest in video games and, like I said, the, the way that they came about and how they've led to where we are today. So I thought it was actually one of the, the best, I guess along with Blind Man's Bluff, it's one of the best nonfiction books I've read in a long time because it was just... And number one, it's in my kind of my area of interest, but also just the way it's written and a lot of the little trivia and the kind of right and left hand turns that led to these major things that we just associate, uh, you know, Super Mario Brothers, the way that came about. Because everybody knows that, you know, this stuff is nameable like Mickey Mouse or Superman. And this is all the stuff that kind of led to that becoming pop culture, notable stuff. Didn't, uh, Didn't Mario come from the Donkey Kong game? Well, okay, so it's the Donkey Kong. That's another great section because Donkey Kong, uh, they were sued by Universal because they said you're ripping off King Kong, which actually they really weren't. It's just that I think Kong actually means something. If I remember in Japanese, it was just a, a happenstance that it was similar to King Kong. And then Donkey also was a mistranslation of something. But yes, the original character was, it was originally called Jumpman. That was Mario's original name. They changed it because the the I think it was the building that Nintendo was housed in in America. The landlord was a, a real scumbag named Mario, and so they kind of took out their anger on him by making they, they named it this because the character was always jumping and smashing people, and that was their impression of him. That's um, a great lesson in life. Yeah, Remember be that, careful, kids. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's stuff like that. There's all that kind of stuff and detail work. And the guy who um, the guy who came up with Mario, who's considered one of the best game uh, minds that there is, uh, because he's behind Mario and Zelda and a number of other huge games. Uh, that was all. You know, he didn't. He was like 15 when he came up with Mario. He was a young guy, and one of the guys at Nintendo just happened to go up to him and he was drawing something and he said, you know, we need a game. Do you want to come up with it? And it's just that, that type of stuff is all through there. But of course, now you look at it and you say, well, Mario is one of the biggest names in gaming, you know, and how many billions of dollars related to that character that some guy just found at a company. And this is the person who came up with Legend of Zelda and Mario Brothers and a bunch of other stuff. So it's, it's a really cool book that way. Like I said, if you don't, if you don't have any interest in video games, I don't know if it would hold your interest, but if you even 
like them a little bit or are interested in where some of these huge characters came from. It's not uh, a comic a book, is it? It's not a comic book. It is absolutely not a comic book. I don't think there's any pictures. I'm I like the people. Yeah, you'd like it. Sold. <laughs> All right, so let me ask you a question, Joe. Is it NES or NES? Uh, it is NES. That is how I. That's how I have always known it and understood it, and that's the way that because it stands for Nintendo Entertainment System. So to me, although I should say there was a character that was uh, that they created for the Nintendo Power magazine called Nestor, based on that name. So I'm sure somewhere people do call it NES. Yeah, I, I would call it, NES. I call it NES, my wife calls it NES, but you say it's an acronym, so it'd be, you would say NES, except TASER is an acronym, RADAR is an acronym, and we, we pronounce them as words. So is FBI and CIA. Oh, that's true, yeah. Yeah, but FBI, you're saying well, those the are letters. more letter. Well, yeah, I don't think. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting. That's true. I mean, I, I would assume you could you would be right either way. But I think if uh, I'd be interested in what an, an English professor would say would be the proper way to do that. Right, either radar way. is wrong. Craig, you need, you need to get off the show, Joe. Right, either way, that's not an option. You're either right or you're wrong. You're, you're not right, right both I don't know, ways. Uh, Craig, if if Joe understands your the level of your sickness with the NES, does he know about your uh, room? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I have a Nintendo room, Joe. I have, uh, I got over 250 uh, cartridges for the original Nintendo. You know, I, it's funny because the Nintendo, uh, I go back and play those games on emulators a lot. And uh, for people, it's it's astounding how much better in some ways game design was when it was constrained by the the simplicity of the, of the console. Because, you know... It's funny because they, I just saw a series of videos where they were, they were having kids play older games and they can't cope with it because older games don't forgive all these mistakes that you're used to now. Games now will let you die eight or nine times. There were games, Kid Icarus, if you played it on the Nintendo, you oh, died game. once and the game was over. You start over. Yep. Well, you could, you could get a continue from a, uh, the beginning of the level. But these levels were ball-bustingly hard. I mean, Kid Icarus was one of the hardest games. And not if you take the cartridge out. Oh, and Kid Icarus, you can't go backwards. Correct. So, Kid right, if you jump you move, too high and the, the floor moves, then you go down and you die. Right. And also, one of the most punishing things about Kid Icarus is that when you get into the dungeons, there's an eggplant wizard who will hit you with an eggplant and turn you into an eggplant with legs. And if you're stuck like that, you're stuck like that, I think, unless you get to a healing room. <laughs> so you cannot, you have no offense, no defense in some really hard levels that don't, you know, you can only take, I think, three or four hits, maybe, depending on the, the enemy, uh, unless you're upgraded. But as the eggplant, you have no way of doing anything except running and jumping. Very tough. So in that way, game design and a lot of people say this has become a, a crutch because you're allowed to die and continue and quick save. You know, th when you play a, a Nintendo game on an emulator, there's a, uh, you could do a save state and it's one of the worst inventions. It's one of the best for somebody like me who doesn't want to, you know, destroy my computer screen with my controller. But <laughs> on the other hand, it, it sucks the difficulty out because you can save right before a challenging spot. In the old games, in the original console, you cannot do any of that. You either make it through or you don't. It's kind of, it does give you a really good contrast on modern game design versus classic game design, which is why a lot of people like, uh, there's a game series called Dark Souls. Dark Souls is punishingly hard. It's very old school. You know, you die, you die, and the multiplayer will let other people kill you and take everything you have, and it's permanent. So there's a lot of people who 
want a return to the difficulty that the NES used to have. Yes. Do you have like a do you employ a young foreign you know teenager to stay in the room just to, uh, to <laughs> blow on the cartridges? No, I got to hit the street corner for someone to blow my cartridges. Hey now. <laughs> and and there's the explicit tag. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. We don't have Paul on here. Things really don't go quite as blue, do they? Hmm. I stayed very clean because I wasn't sure. So I made sure that ball bustingly is probably the worst curse I did. Well, I tell you Which what. is something for me. All right. That's good. I've had enough. Click. Stay tuned, book readers and book listeners. Book Guys Show will return next week. Same book time, same book channel. Christmas? I sure can. I've got a lot of books here. Can I read me a story about Santa Claus? There's a lot of stories with Santa. Do you want me to pick one of these and read it to you, sweetie? And a scary monster, too. I like stories with monsters. Well, I do have one here, Maya, but it might be a little bit scary. I love monsters because I'm not scared of them. All right, then. Let's go sit by the Christmas tree. And I'll tell you the story of Krampus, A Christmas Tale, written by Scott McKenzie, narrated by Paul Alves, with original music by Jeff Smith. I'm going to tell you a Christmas tale with a man who gives books and toys, but this one's a little different. It's been known to scare some girls and boys. We all know Santa Claus is real, but that's only half the story. If you're squeamish, don't go any further. From this point, it gets a bit gory. Santa Claus is the jolly man we know so well. He brings presents and spreads Christmas cheer. But did you know he has a friend called Krampus, who all little children should fear? With long-pointed horns and pitch-black eyes and sharp-broken teeth, please believe. He ventures out with Santa each year at midnight on Christmas Eve. Santa has the easiest task. Good children receive dolls and games. But naughty children get a present from Krampus, a dead mouse, or a bag of sheep's brains. Santa and Krampus compare notes all year long. They know who's winning and losing. Good children get a present from Santa's sack, but every present from Krampus is oozing. A few years ago, they couldn't decide whether one girl had been naughty or nice. Should they leave a rocking horse under the tree or a dog's head infested with lice? The little girl's name was Evelyn. Everyone called her Evie for short. She was the best behaved little girl in the world. At least that's what her parents thought. Let's go back a few hours. We find a little girl putting decorations onto the tree. What's in all these presents? She wonders, and without thinking, she just has to see. She tears open the presents, and her father appears. With a mince pie and a glass of eggnog, he shouts, Oh my, what's going on here? So she blames it all on the dog. 
Now back to that night when Santa and Krampus were standing at the end of her bed. Who would give her a present? Was she naughty or nice? They both shrugged and scratched their head. Santa looked at his list and read aloud, Since last year she's been good once a day. Krampus snarled, Just the same. Then looked at the clock. But it doesn't include what she's been up to today. It was quarter past midnight and she'd just gone to sleep. She'd been sneaking around out of bed. Ha-ha! Krampus growled. She's done something bad. But Santa knew she'd been a good girl instead. Ha-ha-ha! <laughs> Krampus stopped laughing and realized he'd lost. He couldn't win after all. He's the baddie. Evie had put lots of presents under the tree with a card that read, I love you, Mommy and Daddy. Santa is real, but so is Krampus. You must believe me, it's true. So if you don't want a present from Krampus this year, I'll tell you what you must do. Before Christmas comes round once again, if you want Santa to think you're nice, make sure for everything you do that's bad, you do us something good, not once but twice. That was a nice story. Can you read it again? Again, Maya? Again, again, again! Okay, okay. I'll read it to you again, but uh, first we have to say goodbye to all the nice people listening at home. I don't see any people! Well, you can't see them, but they're listening to us right now. Bye, invisible people! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, everybody. You've been listening to Krampus, A Christmas Tale, written by Scott McKenzie, narrated by Paul Alves and Maya Santos. M-A-J-A Santos. With original music by Jeff Smith. Performance copyright 2011. Merry Christmas.